Welcome to Craft of Code, a podcast brought to you by Linode that explores the stories of developers, entrepreneurs, and enterprises of all sizes from all over the world who share our mission to make cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible to all. Based out of Miami, Florida, Arden Labs delivers high-performance software development, consulting, and training to companies both big and small. And with cloud and developer skills in high demand, what Arden does has never been more important. We're talking today with Arden's managing partner, Bill Kennedy. Bill's the author of Go in Action and the Ultimate Go Notebook, plus the author of over 100 blog posts and articles about Go. He's a founding member of GoBridge and the GDN, organizations working to increase Go adoption through diversity. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning, right? What's your story? How did you get into software development and then ultimately training? I got into software development really kind of early on. So let's just set dates because we can have these conversations. You got to have time timelines here. So I'm 52. I graduated high school in the U.S. in 1987, finished university in 91, just so you can get a sense of uh, where I am. And I, I think around 1985, my parents came home with a Radio Shack computer. You're hooked up to the TV and you used a uh, tape recorder to like save your little programs. So I started learning basic around then. And then I got a K-Pro 2 CPM machine, right? That thing was beautiful. It was portable too, right? Like 30 pounds, but it was portable. <laughs> um, and just learned basic. Uh, by the time I was done with high school, I pretty much knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to a university for um, computer science and then went through Pascal and C, graduated, got my first job. And um, yeah, from C to C sharp, from C sharp to go in 2013. Yeah, I had a, a very similar uh, timeline, uh, both to the date, <laughs> as well as uh, as that start with that with, uh, you know, go to 10 repeat <laughs> and print. <laughs> we ended up giving we ended up giving ours to uh, my friend Reed uh, Mangino, who Go, come to find out, eventually went on to become uh, one of a top developer at Apple. So nice. yeah, it's really interesting on that. So you're helping people take their coding skills to the next level. And you're obviously quite passionate about Go as a, as a programming language. What is it about Go? You know, what do you love about it? I could tell you why I chose it in 2013, um, at least. Cause I, I think that's a hard question. And I think it's better answered about why, mm -hmm. you know, I got into it. So in 91, I got my first professional job. I was writing C on for Microsoft for DOS based, you know, operating systems. And I didn't stop working on Windows, essentially NT until 2013. Why? Because when we started Arden back in 2011, we were building solutions for clients on Windows. And after a couple of years, we decided we wanted to bid on a big project for, the, for Miami Beach, right? We had this good client. We, we had some money coming in. It was time to get another client. Miami Beach was doing this whole big website, mobile app thing. I said, let's bid on it. So we put the whole bid together. And we realized at the end of this bid that when you had to include the Microsoft license, licensing costs, 
into what this was going to cost the beach. Our, if anybody was coming in with Linux, our prices were going to be twice as much. Like we were not not going to compete in this space mm-hmm. um, at all using Microsoft. And now the cloud was brand new, and I really wasn't at the time interested in Microsoft's cloud. I wasn't interested in. Um, at the time, losing kind of control over the the machines. So, and pricing was still expensive there anyway. It wasn't like the cloud was gonna make my life any better on the bid, right? So my business partner, Ed Gonzalez and I looked at each other. We were like, we gotta get off window. Like if we're gonna have this consulting business and we wanna go beyond the enterprise and we wanna go beyond uh, what we're doing, we gotta get off windows. So he had already been playing with Ruby. And I, I had looked at Ruby and I wasn't excited about it. I, I had never worked outside of basic, right? I, I hadn't worked with a, an interpreted language. I liked my compiler. I liked the compiler telling me when I made mistakes. I liked having that binary. I liked not having to worry about what was necessarily installed. Like I liked all this stuff for over the last N number of years. So, you know, C sharp did require, but I was running on windows, like whatever. It was always there What that. I didn't have these issues, right? So I didn't like the language. It just didn't feel right to me. And so I started looking at Python. It didn't feel right to me. I looked at Erlang. It didn't feel right to me. For whatever reason, I didn't connect to it. So I I looked at my business partner and I said, this is um, early 2013, right? So I look at him and I said, dude, I I don't know what to do, but I ain't going back to write in C. I ain't doing C and C++ anymore. I did that for 10 years. I'm not doing it again. I think what we're going to have to do is leverage these other uh, languages and Linux technologies for all the front end stuff. And I'm going to stay back here in C sharp and I'm going to do, I'm going to just continue to code the back end. My business partner wasn't too happy about it, but it was going to be what it was going to be. And then he said to me on a Friday or something, Thursday, Friday says, uh, Bill, there's this other programming language here called Go. Why don't you check it out? I'm already like, Done. Like my mind is made up on my own. We're done. I said, fine, whatever. I got time this week. I'm going to, I'll look at within about an hour. The, the language just made sense to me. It just connected with me. It was like, I had C and Pascal back. I had C sharp back in a sense, other than the object oriented programming. So it was like, I had C back without all the complexity of it. Like, and that's really what ended up going through my head. And within the scope of a weekend, I was already feeling like this, I could build. No, I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, right. Cause so two things now have to happen to me, right? I've spent 20 something years understanding window internals at the OS level, mm-hmm. learning how to be really productive in, in a couple of languages. And I now have to throw all that away. I got to learn a new operating system, a new programming language. Um, you don't, this doesn't happen to you very often, right? Where you're really kind of starting from scratch. And so I, I made the decision at the time and I told my business partner, if we're going to do this and I'm basically a clean slate, which I am, I'm going to start blogging about my experience from a, a newbie perspective because that doesn't exist. By the time people start writing most of the time, they're already a quote unquote expert, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you're starting out, I mean, I'm struggling too. I don't even know how to, 
how to set an environmental variable on my on this now Mac that I have. I I have no idea what it even means to have the the shell and this. I I mean we're talking like new. So I started documenting at the at the most detailed level everything that I was learning just to get the machine running, just to get a Go program running, just to and and people attached themselves to that because it just didn't exist. There was always these assumptions. And 10 years later, I have to fight now with myself to remember that there's somebody who doesn't know this. Stop assuming that somebody knows this, unless you're going to say up front, I assume that you have some of this knowledge. But that's not who I'd like to say I am in terms of the way I write and stuff. I really try to cater to somebody who is kind of start, not, not, not a brand new programmer. What, what I say all the time, Mike, is I cannot teach you how to program, but I can teach you how to engineer. And what's mm-hmm. the difference, right? The difference is for me, and I, and I tell everybody in my classes all the time, you're always in two different modes. You're in a programming mode and then an engineering mode. And sometimes nobody moves into the engineering mode, which is, which is why we can get in some trouble with software. But programming mode is just find some code that works doesn't have to be pretty. I don't care about idioms. I don't care about abstractions. I don't care about, in fact, I don't even want to see an interface. Everything should be in the concrete. Give me a piece of code, whether that's 20, 100 lines of code that just works. Happy path, nothing else. That's programming. See, I can't teach that. You got to learn how to do the research and find the code and just get it to work and get that API key. And when I interview people for the teams I'm running, I give a programming interview. Because if you can't do the programming, it's just not going to work. Now, I can teach the engineering, Mike, which is how do we turn that code that you just gave me that gives me happy path and works into a piece of engineering that we can put in production, that we can maintain and manage for the long haul? That I can teach. I mean, you say say something that I think a lot of us for, you know, either ignore or forget is that a lot, you know, the languages that we use, the code that we that we build really is personal right it's it's something that you've got to you've got to really internalize and believe in is what i'm hearing you say well or connect to 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 answer that i I would say this i would say a few things that are maybe not that in terms of code so let me go down this path here rule number one is you are responsible for every line of code you write I don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. You are responsible. And if you're not going to take responsibility or you're going to try to lean that on your company, you're not working for me. I just don't have time. I didn't say this, but I've heard this, right? We are the only industry where people's lives are at risk and we're not licensed to do our job. And honestly, I don't know how long that's going to last because our entire lives are connected to that phone and this laptop. And the mental health of our of our country today is so bad that your bug that has nothing to do with healthcare could be the last bug that this person needed to just jump off the and, and I, I'm just I'm trying to mm-hmm. say how serious it is the work that we do mm-hmm. and I don't care what the industry is and so if you're not taking responsibility for what you're doing especially with what I think software development you shouldn't be here and so there, there's a responsibility there but one of the things that I strive for in my teams in terms of coding is that 
at least for the projects I'm working on. Nobody should open up a source code file and know who wrote it. Hmm. That we what do you mean by that? Have, in other words, we should have very clear design guidelines, design philosophies, style that we work as a team together. So if I open up this code and I'm looking at this function, I can't tell if it was Jane who wrote it or I wrote it, nothing, because we're following a, a concise and precise set of engineering practices that even through code review, we make sure that's happening. And from a personal perspective, you must be responsible for the code you write. However, however, and I think this is the piece that gets missed. You can't, you don't own that code in, 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 in the sense that I'd like to imagine that two or three years from now, I want to be working on a different code base. I want a different challenge. And what happens is, is that if you're writing a piece of code just for yourself and you're not following good, strong engineering practices, if you're not thinking about the next person that has to come into this code base, then what happens when you walk away and the next person comes into the code base? It gets thrown away. It doesn't get maintained. And now the last two, three, four years of your life disappeared. And so the question of what is the legacy you're leaving behind should be for, forefront. It's when I'm 10 years from now, is any of my work still adding value on the planet or is it all gone? Is my work bringing joy or did I build something that is so horrific that somebody comes into work every day and is absolutely miserable because this has now become their life? You need to be thinking, you need to have empathy for the next human being that's got to come in and maintain this stuff. And if you don't, it's gone. Now, I'm fortunate, I think, in that I've got a, I, from what I know, I've got a product that's about almost 20 years old, still running in production. Maybe that's a little too long. Um, at least one that's 10 years old, still running in production. But after 30 something years, that's what I have, two that I can kind of hang my hat on. And it's because I've kind of followed these design philosophies and guidelines. Um, and developers are just thinking so short term, like this is my job for the next year or two. I'm just going to hack this until I get to the next one. And we wonder why we end up having this legacy software, right? So one of my favorite quotes is, um, it's not earthquakes and asteroids that are going to destroy the planet, right? It's it's legacy software that eventually is going to stop and crash. That's going to bring down civilization, right? I'm paraphrasing the, mm -hmm. the quote, but like, I mean, how true is that? I, I think it's really true. More Richies and Thompsons. So, you know, when I'm teaching engineering, I'm really trying to teach uh, a foundation of uh, my opinions and what I believe in terms of design philosophy and guidelines, trying to then apply at least this goes idioms around that. Um, and I'd like to think that I'm teaching not necessarily go, but engineering with go, giving speak. teams an opportunity to have the engineering conversations they're not having. You know, and, spe and speaking of, of teaching, uh, as I was getting ready for this interview and doing the research, I saw on GitHub that you're offering a class on building services in go using Kubernetes. Um, you know, that's a, that's a hot topic, um, as hot as global politics, <laughs> you know, why, why Kubernetes? So I actually just did two days of, uh, workshops at GopherCon, uh, the last two days, just, to, you know, on that, I, I really need a week to teach it, but look, th this is interesting, right? I, I, 
For the last three years, I've been asking myself a question, which is how much does a software developer really need to know about the production system that their code is going to run on? And where is the line in the sand, the contract, the line in the sand between the developer and the person that's managing, say, ops? We'll just call it ops. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of companies now where the developer has to be the ops. In fact, I think being a software developer today is 10,000 times more complicated than it was 20, even 10, 20 years ago. Why? Because when I started out, I was on the software development team. There was a separate team doing QA. There was a separate team managing the production environments. All I had to know was my micro level, macro level engineering principles. And I had to just focus on those couple of things, right? Today, how many developers have to know their micro and macro level? When I say micro, we're, we're getting down into data semantics and lower level code. Macro level, we're talking about architecture and design of your software, project structures, logging, config, right? That, that, there's a lot there. But now we're asking developers to be able to install a production system and manage that. I mean, that's that's a whole nother level of not like, and then we're asking people to understand observability and integrating all that into, and then you always have to understand the business and the business model. I love asking developers, what's the business problem you're trying to solve? What's your revenue model as well? And when developers can't answer that, I, I, I get scared, right? So there is so much that a developer needs to have in their head. It's, I think, become overwhelming. But let's say that we could split this again, right? where I can just focus on the software development and somebody else can focus on the ops side, right? So how much of that production system do I really need to understand? And, and where is that, that handoff? Now, prior to Kubernetes, and I still do this today, really, it's, it's all about you keep it simple until you can. So let's get a couple of boxes from Linode or DigitalOcean and let's run our service there. And we can run it across a load balancer and it, it's going to work and life is good and deployment isn't really that complicated, right? But the entire industry for better or not has decided that Kubernetes is the platform to be able to deploy, manage and run your production environment. That's what it is. And the cloud is providing better and better support for it. And eventually, I think, I don't know, 10 years from now, maybe, you won't even know you're running in some form of a Kubernetes-based orchestration environment, right? It will just be um, maybe images and containers in our world. So I didn't want to jump into Kubernetes. I avoided it for the longest time, but there was just no way to avoid it. So I decided to focus on it from a developer standpoint. Don't ask me to install. I, ain't gonna, I don't want to know how to install one. I don't want to know how to do any of that. I, I, I get to the point where it's like, hand me a Kubernetes environment, and then I can teach developers how to deploy their code in that environment. Understand what it is. Understand that not the mechanics or implementation, the semantics, the behavior of what that Kubernetes cluster pod infrastructure is and then teach somebody how to write code for that. So I do think that a developer has to have at least a semantic understanding, a behavioral understanding of the production system so they can architect their code properly and they can um, be able to hand off to the ops team properly. So in my world, 
I think a form of Kubernetes configuration is a, probably a pretty good handoff to the ops team, and then they can take that and 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 modify it for for their purpose. So so a, a development version of config that maybe ops can can take from there. And that's kind of where I'm at. And that's kind of what I'm teaching. How, how you know, where do managed services come in? Cause we know we're, we've seen the trends across the cloud with managed services. And I know Linode's Kubernetes engine, the managed Kubernetes engine has been um, ridiculously popular. And I, you know, part of that is clearly, you know, the result of, and why Arden's around is this continuing skills gap that we see across developers and, and cloud. But a lot of people are, looking, you know, what we've seen are, you know, they're looking for help making the complex, you know, this infrastructure stuff simple so that they can get on with doing whatever it is they were really there to do, right? The sort of that, that DevOps part that you're talking about. Are you seeing managed services playing out across your clients? Most of our clients are using one, one of the clouds and most of them are using Kubernetes and we're more coming in. We do a little ops support. We're doing more. We're helping more companies with dev dev resources and, and projects there. A lot of companies want to manage and own their own ops side of things, which I think is smart. <laughs> you want to own that. You don't want to necessarily leave that to a to a, a consulting company. I think the software development is fine. Um, we, for our personal projects, we've put some things in Kubernetes because we wanted to learn it, but we know that that was totally overkill. Like our Linode box was just enough. Like it, it worked well enough. And I think some people are starting to, to see that. I mean, how complex is it today to build and run software? So it, here's the thing, right? I, I'm not a fan of microservices. I'm just not. The whole industry went like crazy with this idea that having a monolith service is like going to be the downfall of, of your product. And the reality is this, how, especially for startups and companies that are, that are starting, you know, in the beginning here, how complicated is it to write a single service that provides the things you need that runs day in and day out without any issues, a single service standalone that just runs day in and day out. You know how difficult that is? That is complicated stuff. And what happens is so many developers and teams say day one, no, 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 we're doing microservices. We're going we're gonna to start with four services and everybody's going to write their own service day one. Now, suddenly, not only did you already have the complexity of getting this one service running, you now have the complexity of, well, how are these services going to talk to each other? Oh, I know, we'll use gRPC. And we've never done that before, but let's add the complexity to our lives. Oh, yeah, and I know. How, do, how are you going to do distributed logging? I don't know. We'll just bring all this stuff in. How are we going to track? And so suddenly you have to deal with all of this distributed complexity the same day one that you had to deal with just getting something to work, right? And now you got to figure out how am I going to deploy and manage these four services? And now you're like, oh, I got Kubernetes. When in reality, your first version could have just been a single service where four people could have worked on that. Um, I think Go lends itself to that with their packaging, uh, the way they package code. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, is that I, I'm a big believer in refactoring. You're writing code for today, you're architecting for tomorrow, and that you need to, ref, you need to learn, discover, and refactor. It's like prototype-driven development with data-oriented design. 
And so if you're not doing that, and it mean, doesn't mean you're going to move slow. It means that what you're doing is making sure that everything you're doing is what you need now. Because tomorrow's not promised. And we're not going to guess. And if you do that, you might feel like you're moving slow in the beginning. But you end up really moving quickly later on down the path because you, you, you just have what you need. And that's whether it's code, whether it's architecture, whether whether it's all of it. So I just wish more companies would just slow down a little bit on this whole, you know, this whole thing on microservices. Now, when it comes to Kubernetes, it made sense. Like microservices made sense to me in Kubernetes in the sense of this concept of a sidecar mm-hmm. where you have a core service that's fulfilling some sort of purpose through an API, right? So let's like a garage sale. I have a garage sale API. There it is. You can enter products, buy products, whatever. That's a core part of a of an API. But is metrics a core part of the business problem? No. Metrics is something that we need for what? For debugging the service, for, for knowing its health. If I didn't have it, I could still sell product in my garage sale. So this is something on the side, not that we need to solve the business problem. It solves more of an internal, say, ops problem. Now, this to me is a beautiful case where, okay, let's build a second service that focuses on metrics and lets us kind of zero in on what we want to do with metrics, how we gather them, where we distribute them. And in fact, for me, this is the a beautiful opportunity for your ops team to start writing code. I think there's a ton of sidecars that that the ops teams could be writing to make their life better. And the more that the op, op teams are writing code, the better it is for everybody. I mean, I, I think everybody's a developer today. I don't care what your role is. Even if you're managing um, Terraform scripts, you're programming, right? I mean, give me a break. So, um, For me, I want to get the entire team involved. And so this idea of a microservice isn't to split the garage sale API into two parts. It's let's write another service that's providing something really clear and specific so we don't have to put it into the into the like metrics or logging or I don't know. Think of all the other things that you might need or want to help support the service that isn't trying to solve the business problem in and of itself. And I think Kubernetes architect, pod architecture lends itself to that. And I, and, and I kind of like that a lot. I like that model. And I, I also, you know, I also noticed that, you know, Arden Labs core values align pretty closely to Linode's uh, when I was looking at this, uh, you know, values like transparency, reliability, integrity, simplicity, um, especially simplicity. Uh, you know, when you started working in you or even looking at Linode, was it the values alignment or the technology or a mix of both that, drew you to to Linode or simple or just honestly <laughs> it was really inexpensive really easy to get a machine up and running and really easy for us to deploy um, the services we were building um, we weren't looking at we didn't have services that needed massive load so we could run on one or two machines early on and it was like it was almost like it was faster than just going to the store and getting a computer, putting it into the data center and, and running because that's what we needed, right? In fact, it was mind-blowing to me at the time because remember, I was coming from a Microsoft environment where that really didn't exist just yet. And I'd have to go buy machines. We'd have to install them, set them up, get them in the data center. And suddenly, 
for like $20 a month, I had more computing power than I needed. And within an hour, I had something already out there on the internet. I was like, at the time, it was mind blowing, mind blowing. So, I mean, we loved Linode. We, and I, I imagine we still have some products there even now today that, that we built. Like I said, Kubernetes has really kind of taken over. So we've had to learn it. And so we've moved some stuff um, around there. But from my perspective, I don't really care who gives me the Kubernetes. I really, really don't, right? I'm beyond that. I just want to say, give me a Kubernetes environment. Tell me the few things I need to know about your CLI tooling and let's go, right? So I want to end on, on this last question. I want to shift gears just a just a little bit um, because it's something that, I, that people probably don't uh, get a chance to see a lot out of both of our organizations. Is you know, Linode is involved with an organization called HopeWorks that provides training to at-risk youth in the Philadelphia area. Um, it sounds like the project you started with GoBridge has a similar mission. So would love to hear a little bit more about what you're doing with GoBridge because this stuff's really important, right? It goes to, you know, to that larger story that you were just talking about at the, at the start of the podcast about us, you know, about helping society, doing things bigger. So GoBridge is a organization that sits under a, uh, a nonprofit organization called Bridge Foundry. So there's a Ruby bridge and a closure bridge and there's, um, I apologize for not remember all the other languages and stuff that are attached to this, but we're the GoBridge side. Um, personally, I, I have this belief system that no one should be denied access to the education they need because they can't afford it or because geographically they can't access it. This kills me. It kills me to the point where, and I tell this all the time, all of Arden's ver, um, video material is available to any, we have a price point, we're in business, we got to make money. But if you can't afford it, you come to me and you tell me what you can pay. And I will get it to you, including free. I mean, there are people who live in Iran. It's not their fault. That's where they're born. It's not their fault. They can't leave. We're not allowed to do business with Iran. So am I supposed to tell somebody in Iran, I'm sorry, you can't have access to this material. That No, I won't do it. I'm going to tell you that I won't do it. And I put people on the honor system. So if you can afford it, then, then please pay for it because it allows me to now give this away to, for free if I have to, to those who can't. So that's how I've, we've done that. When I started GoBridge, there was this, and there still is, it's, there's a lack of representation, right? Mm -hmm. And, and I, I can't speak for any other tech or language. I can speak for Go. But at least for the 10 years I've been here, if we have an event, 5% will be women. That's it. That's all who shows up, 5%, right? Whatever the number. So if we grow the event and more people, it's still 5%. Do we have more women? Yeah, we got more. But it's still 5%, right? And there's, um, over the years, I've learned a lot of reasons why that is. And so one of the things I wanted to do with GoBridge early, in which what we did was to provide trainings 
obviously for free, but to create environments where we would have a training just with people who identify as women or people of color, um, to, to create environments where, um, those people would feel really comfortable being in a room with each other. And so they'll, they'll come to learn and you'll see a big difference when somebody's in a, in a room that they feel safe in, as opposed to not the, 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 the lectures, the conversations, the, the training is just so much better. So um, I focused a lot of GoBridge really, really early on and, and, and going over all over the planet to the right. I mean, from San Francisco all the way to Kenya to offer these GoBridge trainings to try to give people access to, to all this material. And then um, we open it up to anybody who has training that they want to provide. Can We can help them set up a workshop. We can, we can do all these things. We also support all of the Go conferences with scholarships. So we try to do that to make sure that uh, people are, again, that people have access to the educational resources they need that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get either again, because of money, but they don't feel comfortable in that space or, or geography. Right. And so that's kind of what GoBridge's big mission is. And um, the pandemic has really slowed us down a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we really haven't done anything that big in the last couple of years. Conferences have all become virtual. And a lot of them have had to almost be free because it's hard to sell a, a ticket like that. And so I'm hoping going into next year, um, once flights open up, we don't have to test every three hours and all that kind of stuff. Um, we can we can start doing all of that work again. Um, and then we, we joined forces with Exorcism IO. If nobody's ever heard of Exorcism IO, go check them out. They they are a mentoring platform, a community based mentoring platform. They they go way beyond Go. Um, almost all, almost every language is represented there. And so for people who are looking for mentoring, just about any language, like Exorcism IO. So we we help fund grants too, right? Mm-hmm. So we've funded grants with Exorcism IO. We funded grants with a uh, another team that built something called Play With Go, which is a really cool website to learn how to work with Go's tooling. It's not like programming side, it's the tooling side. How do you deal with dependencies? How do you deal with this? How do you do like really cool stuff? Um, and so we try to also support those that are trying to create education uh, or, edu- you know, educational and mentoring uh, to make sure those platforms don't don't disappear. So that's kind of the work we're doing. Well, I want to thank you for your time uh, today, Bill. It's absolutely amazing what Arden and you are doing and your partners are doing to, um, you know, to advance the, you know, the idea of programming and, and, and upping our level of skills across the industry and also making it more, uh, more inclusive and available to, uh, to everybody. Uh, just kudos to you on that and continue to do that, that good work. So where can our listeners learn more about Arden and where can they connect with you? So our website, A-R-D-A-N, Arden, that's a, like an Irish word that means platform. So we were building platforms, Arden, A-R-D-A-N, labs.com. You can find me on Twitter at goinggo, D-O-T net, goinggo.net. That was the name, the domain of my first blogging website, not knowing anything about social media in 2013. Where, <laughs> so where, I, where was it? Had, where'd you have, where'd you have, what was it on? <laughs> What was it on? 
oh, I think I was using Blogger for the blog. And then I bought that domain. And then I'm like, what is my handle going to be for Twitter? I don't want it to be personal. I, but I didn't understand how it all worked. So I did go and go.net. So that's my Twitter. Um, you can DM me there. Email is really the best way to talk to me too, because I run my life out of email. So that's bill at ardenlabs.com. Do not hesitate to reach out. I will get back to you within 24 hours. That's my mission because I don't like when people don't get back to me. So I don't do that to anybody else. Do not hesitate to reach out to me. You are not bothering me. I am not so busy that I can't talk to you. So please just ping me, reach out. I will get back to you and we'll figure out and have a conversation, whatever it is you need or want. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this was uh, just an absolute joy to, uh, and experience talking to you. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Craft of Code. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please subscribe to make sure you're the first to hear when we release future episodes. And we'd love it if you left a review. Thank you.